Here we go. This is part one or three with the Brad Sugars. Do you know what it takes to become a real entrepreneur? Well, you better sit back and enjoy the ride because this is real. This is different. You're going to get a whole new perspective of what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur. Let's do this. Okay, Brad, let's talk entrepreneurship. Where would we start in that subject? Well, the difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur is probably a good starting point. A business owner owns one business, an entrepreneur buys bills and sells companies. Uh, a business owner wants to be the CEO, an entrepreneur wants to employ CEOs. Is there a myth out there then? Because a lot of people think, I've started my business, I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely, that's a myth. It's like... An entrepreneur is a trader of businesses. An entrepreneur builds companies for sale. They don't build companies for cash flow. Most people build, most people are business owners. They don't want to own multiple companies. They're looking to build one business and have the cash flow pay them back forever. Entrepreneurs are all about capital value. So what is the value of that business? And for a business to be valuable, it's got to be finished. It's got to be available for sale. It's got to be a finished product type thing. It's like, you know, if I built this microphone and forgot to put the stand in and didn't have these screws on it, it's not finished. So it's not worth very much. Most businesses are like that. They're not finished. They're not run by a management team. They don't run without the owner. If the owner's not there, it's the business dies, all that sort of thing. So yes. uh, I think business entrepreneurs understand that your job is to build something for sale uh, rather than build something for cash flow. What are the top five most important qualities of a successful entrepreneur, in your opinion? Oh, I don't know if you could say there's a top five. Um, you know, there's all the same success principles, obviously, you know, that they self-discipline, all those things yeah. that a normal successful person is. I think first thing for an entrepreneur is deal maker. You got to be a great deal maker. You got to be able to make deals happen. You know, when you go to buy a business, you've got to be able to convince that person to sell it to you at the right price so at that, the right that's point like in influence time. And persuasion. All and those things NLP come into deal making. Yeah. All those things. So decisiveness. Um, it's deal making. Come on, it surely is. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, when you're doing deal making. A lot of the time, you're just throwing out a fishing line and seeing what bites. A lot of the time, you're just putting an offer out there just to see if there's interest type so That's thing. empowerment. Um, you know, as a real estate investor, you make an offer to buy a piece of real estate. That's not buying it. Yeah. You're just making an offer, you know. And if you go back to contract law, invitation to treat, offer, and acceptance, you know. What stops people making offers? Well, they don't have a plan. Like if, if you knew your job is to buy that business, fix it and sell it, then there's a distinct difference. You actually understand what you're doing type thing. So if I go back to your question, the first thing would be deal making. I think the second thing that makes a great entrepreneur is leadership. Because once you've bought that business, you have to lead that team in a different way to the previous leadership. You have to get them enrolled and inspired and ready to go and go bigger and go faster and all of that sort of thing. And I think we're seeing a great example of that right now with like Elon Musk with Twitter where 
yeah, creating something from scratch, Elon, where they all think you're God and, and a devout following 100% great. Turning around a company with an entirely different culture, he's learning a bunch of different lessons right there as to, to what it is. So. Does it have to be you as the leader if you buy it? Someone has to be the leader, and if you're not the leader, you're the leader of the leader. Yeah, okay, I got it. So, yeah. you know, one way or the other, you're in charge. The buck stops with you. If it's your money or if it's the venture capital fund's money that you're investing, you got to be able to go and, and turn that thing. So I think deal-making and, and leadership, uh, I would imagine planning vision is somewhat a big part of that. Uh, being able to see, uh, years ago someone said to me, you know, an entrepreneur is just the world's greatest liar. And I said, what do you mean by that? Because I got taken aback by it, thinking, what do you call me, a liar? You know? And he says, no, no, you guys have visions of stuff that isn't real. It's, it's totally not true when you say it, but you're going to go out and make it true. Sort definitely of thing. grabbed your attention. He definitely did grab my attention, not in a positive way either. Um, but the, the thing about it is that you've got to have that vision and then the planning to go with that to be able to do that. And you know, whether you are the planner or whether you are capable of helping other people create that plan. I know whenever we take on any project, one of the big things I love doing is sitting in that boardroom for two days and just mapping out where is it going to go. Is it always two days? Always two days. You need, you need an overnight in the middle. Why? You just do. Your brain, you come back at the, the second day and you look at some of those ideas you had on the first day and go... Whose stupid idea was that? Well, that was mine. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know, that happens when your idea is flowing sort of thing. But yeah, you, you do that. You have the two days of mapping out the future of that business and knowing where it's going. And then you, if you're doing a five to seven year full strategic plan, it's about a five day thing. It's, it's not a two day thing. You do this for like people that want to scale to hundred million plus, yeah? Yeah, well, when people really want to scale, I'll pull them aside. And well, I pick 10 businesses a year to go and do that with and generally end up investing in one or two of those businesses. So, um, But, yeah, it's, it's really uh, – so, yeah, if I, I don't know. There's maybe three um, that is, is, is an interesting thing. My buddy Jeffrey Giddem is over here flashing a sign at me saying, risk-taking – and I would say an entrepreneur is, I don't know, maybe I disagree with you, Jeffrey, because as an entrepreneur, I don't take many risks. Do you calculate risks? Because um, there's risk-taking and there's, there's the risk. I mean, calculating risk, we do all day, every day, don't we? Isn't that part I mean, of driving your car is a risk. My thing with being an entrepreneur is, is really I don't buy into a deal that I know isn't, like on the day I buy it, I make a profit. The day I bought it, I bought it so well that I could turn around tomorrow and sell it for more. The person selling it to me couldn't turn around tomorrow and sell it for more because they don't know how to sell a business. And one of the greatest things about selling and buying businesses is that it's a fairly illiquid market until you get to $5 million plus a year in EBITDA. The moment you get to $5 million a year in EBITDA, it's a liquid market. You've got all the venture capital funds looking out there to buy. Any business that's looking for... Like if you're trying to sell your business for a million bucks, not a lot of buyers. Looking to sell your business for 50, 100 million dollars, lots of buyers. So that big differential is, let's just say, I'll give you a simple example, arbitrage, a simple roll-up strategy, right? Where let's say I find a particular type of business, let's say it's laundromats, right? And they're all simple businesses and they're owned by mom and pop and mom over here owns one and pop over here owns one. And I go and buy 
laundromats. And let's say I'm paying a two multiple to buy these things, maybe even a three times profits multiple to buy these things, right? So I go out and I buy a whole bunch of them at low multiples, all right? Put them all together, all across wherever I'm buying. I come up, the group now has $7 million a year in EBITDA. It's got a management team that runs the entire organization. We've gone from a thousand different brands of washer and yeah. dryer to a single brand of washer and dryer. We've got one app that runs the whole thing. You know, all of the money gets put into a central system. There's, we've negotiated down all the rates of the credit card companies. We've done all of that stuff. We've got all of those efficiencies. That now then will sell for eight to 12 multiple easily to a, a venture cap fund. What do you think the the time, the average time is be, by doing that? You know, Three to in, seven years. Three to seven years to group three to four together, buy a uh, two to three multiple, point them together. Not always two to three it. multiple. Sometimes they're fours and sixes. So, right. But you're going for an eight to 12 anyway. Correct. Because you're going over the threshold of that five million. It's a nice benchmark. that we. And you're you putting it under management too. It's not run by mom and pop now. It's run by a management team. So it's a totally different business. A business that's run under management is finished. A business that's run under management where the ownership team, I'm not, if, if I sell you a business, James, let's say I own a photography business, uh -huh. right? And I'm the photographer and I go to sell it to you. You have to be a photographer to buy my photography business for it to make any value for you. Now, if I go out there and I buy the laundromats, and I've got it run under management team, who can buy that business? Anyone can buy that business. Any investor. So the chances of selling to someone with a lot of money who has the skill are fairly low. Chances of selling to someone who has a lot of money, doesn't need any skill other than run the business, fairly high. So yeah, so, entrepreneurs so look for capital value, not Cash flow. All right, so we've got deal-making, leadership, planning vision. Is it that looking for capital value or is it running under management? Or I think right? raising capital would be the next thing for an entrepreneur, yeah. the ability to raise capital. Um, you know, the, whether for years I would only do it with my own capital and then you put together a venture capital fund and all of a sudden it's a different game. Yeah. Now you can play with other people's money and uh, you're managing their money with all of the rules and regulations around managing their money, but you can definitely do a lot more deals and a lot bigger deals because you're using other people's capital. Okay, so that, is that four or is the run under management and getting a management team? Buddy, I don't yeah. know. You said five. I'm just trying to make a list. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not Deal. sure what the total list would be, but um, if I ever sat down and wrote a list of the top things well, for we've it. got four there we've got yeah the i would maker. probably always try and get to a top 10 but ultimately your job as an entrepreneur is to see things that other people can't to see a business in a different way to see it in a different light to see what the problem is to be able to grasp what needs to be done to take that average business and turn it into a great business sort of thing and so that's visionary yeah it's partly that partly that but I think experience comes with a lot of that, James. You know, when I didn't know, when I was a young man in business, right, I didn't know how to manage people, mm -hmm. didn't know how to lead people. Well, great. Through my first few companies, I learned how to manage, I learned how to lead. I didn't know marketing. So through my first few companies, I had to learn marketing, sales, all of these things. And so by learning all of those skills now, when I go into another business, the solution for the sales team is a 
obnoxiously right there for me to see. They can't see it. And I walk in and I go, oh my God, how do I not tell them this while I'm trying to buy this business? Like, how do I, don't say a dang thing about how you would fix this while you're buying it. Wait till you've bought it, then fix it. You get excited about that. Oh, 100%. 100%. I've blown it so many times where I just tell them, why aren't you doing this? And they go, oh, oh. (laughs) Like, damn it, messed that one up. But, you know, these things do happen. A lot of it's, most of the time these days, though, we're not looking to buy a whole company. We're looking to take a share in a company. And the current owner wants us to be a shareholder because they want our influence. They want our capital. Uh, they want our intellect, uh, our partnership, basically. So well, let's talk about two things that are part of the intellect then. The difference between fixing and building. Mm-hmm. Fixing takes less than 12 months. Building takes forever. Less than 12 months. What, oh, what kind you of can fix any fix? business in three to eight months usually. How? Well, first of all, stop doing the stupid things that they're doing. Make that's, a list of the stupid stuff. There's, there's always five to ten stupid things that they're doing that's costing them customers, costing them money, costing them sales. You just got to stop. Most people's success is not about doing new things. It's about stop doing the stupid things. I was on a scale-up session once with you and with a group of people and you said, everybody right now, make a list of your five biggest distractions. Mm. I think you said ten, actually, to be fair to you. Ten biggest distractions. No one's ever asked them to make a list of distractions before. Yeah. So do you do that with stupid things as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, when you buy a company, the first thing you got to do is stop doing things. You, you can't make way for something new unless you stop what you're currently doing. And that gives what? Well, it gives you... Well, A, it stops you bleeding... Um, the number of companies that are bleeding just because they're doing stupid bleeding things. Bleeding money. Bleeding money, bleeding customers, Emotions. bleeding staff. <laughs> you know, I mean, turning over staff is a massive cost to businesses these days. And they don't get it, how much of a cost that is to their organization. Just spell it out for us, please. The, turn, the cost of turning over staff. So one of my companies, Engage and Grow, where we uh, help companies get into their employee engagement programs, right? What we look at in those programs is the productivity levels of humans in an organization, okay? And in an organization where there is an average level, have a guess, by the way, all the surveys done, what would you guess is the average level of engagement of an employee in an organization today? Now, the US has the highest, England's a few, a few points below that. What, do you, what would your guess be? 44. 36 is the United States, okay? The UK is, in the, UK is in the low 30s. Right. right. Now, the reason for the US being ahead is they've been leaders in employee engagement for a long time. The, the Californians have made that become a thing. It's, it's weird the way that the world seems to work, but the Californians do things first and we all go, that's the dumbest thing ever. And then 20 years later, we're all doing it sort of thing, you know? People are like, really? What do you mean? Well, 20 years ago, they legalized marijuana. Now the entire world's legalizing marijuana sort of thing. It's just the stupid things that they do first and we all follow. But employee engagement and productivity are inextricably linked. Employee engagement and turnover of staff is inextricably linked. So when we look at the cost of just days taken off, just days off, sick days, personal time out, that and I don't have the percentages right in front of me, but you can look up all of the statistics on these things. Um, but we see the employee, every point increase in employee engagement leads to a two-point increase in productivity. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out we better get better at 
you know, compassionate leadership, better, better at all of these things of engaging our employees. It's amazing so how fast it can grow. improve. You know, I've seen some of the results yeah. on, uh, you know, on the surveys that come back there. It's amazing how fast that. Well, people try and do employee engagement with technology. Technology doesn't engage people. Technology has them interact. But engagement is a human to a human. Unless, unless two humans get to learn more about each other at a personal level, I'll give you one simple example. There was one particular trucking company. There were two guys that were the two managers of two different divisions, and they were antagonistic with each other all the time. And the owner of the business said, you know what, we're doing this program because I've had enough of this. We're all going to – and you're either going to self-select out or you're going to self-select in. One way or the other, I'm, yeah. I'm done. And so these two particular guys, we got to, I think it was about week four in the program, and they're looking at their leadership acts, and one of them talked about his leadership – got up and shared something very vulnerable about his wife's cancer and how that made him such a hard person and all of this sort of thing and how he had to go through all of that. And within minutes, the other guy stood up and started talking about his scenario and they both broke down and, and boom, opened up the entire organisation to two guys that used to just belt heads to now getting along and even... Mm -hmm being human with each other sort of thing. But because they didn't know each other at a personal level, they weren't willing to connect. And so there couldn't be engagement between those two people. But yeah. When you shared that story, my hairs were standing on end. You're reaching emotion there. I mean, I believe that wholeheartedly. Well, that's what engagement is. Engagement of people is emotion. You can't have employee engagement without some level of emotive connectivity. I heard this recently, actually, in a few books I've read. So business B2C sales, everyone's heard of B2C, B2B sales... Ready the new one. Here's the here's. Yeah, human it's to human. human. There you go. So building then. Let's go to building. Mm -hmm. So we've got fixing three to eight months or within the 12 months type yep. thing. And then building, you said forever. Yeah, look, you can go on forever and ever in a day. Um, but what we try and do is uh, when I sit with a business owner or an entrepreneur, I ask them to commit to a date by which they'll finish the business. It's one of your first questions that you ask. Yeah. I, I have two numbers or two dates that I want every business owner to write down when I first meet with them. Number one is by what date will the business work without you? Okay, totally. It'll run without you. You can take a six-month vacation, no phone, no email, no nothing. It will run and you know you'll come back and it'll yeah. be bigger than when you left. And then the second date is a step before that and is by what date will you be off the tools? So if you're a hairdresser, what date will you stop cutting hair? If you're a plumber, what date will you stop wearing boots? If you're an accountant, what Oof. day will you stop doing accounting work and actually have the business work without you sort of thing on that very fundamental level? So, And then from there, I want to know what, you know, when they do finish it, and let's say that's, say, seven years from now, what do they want revenues to be? What do they want profitability to be? What do they want the business to be valued at? Or what, it sale like at? Yeah. what it looks like when they're finished. Uh, was it Tom Watson did that with IBM? And then he said, you know, I, I went to work on creating IBM, not in, a, uh, in IBM. Building it over that time, mm -hmm. how important is people? When well, you're building, building your product mix, you're building your customers, you're building your database. So reputation, systems, and humans is really what you're looking at in that organization. Reputation. Marketing, sales, database, all the existing customers, future customers. Uh, it's often ignored his reputation, you know. It's like, well, it can't be anymore. A lot of people still, like, just spamming out. and Yeah, look, I mean, you could get away with that in days gone by. I don't think you can get away with that anymore. 
your reputation as an employer is out there on glassdoor.com. Your reputation as a business is out there on thousands of websites. It's a good thing for your business. Google rating. Yeah, it's good if you do good business. Well, it's feedback if you don't. And it's, it's definitely feedback if you don't. Um, so you look at those things and you say, well, okay, how do we make sure our reputation is managed? Because in this day and age, reviews, testimonials, ratings, all have to be very high on your list of what of what you're looking for. And um, the businesses have a lot. I had to learn that the hard way, though. I, I remember early on in my career thinking, oh, my customers speak for myself. I don't need to go out there and have them say things about me. And then you realize that the only person saying anything about you is that one or two negative people. Yeah. And then you go, dang, I'd better ask my customers to go and say something about me. And so, you know, it, then you go and start actually filming testimonials from them and asking them for reviews and asking them for ratings and that sort of thing. And, you know, you've got to do it this day and age. Is the systematic, building the systems around creating that social proof, if you like, is that core to building a business? Um, you, you've definitely got to do it. You, you've, I mean, all of the systematic approach to your business has to be done. But in many cases, you've got to go right back to the core strategy of the business. What is the business model? Um, is the business a rental business? Is the business a wholesale business? Is the business a license or a franchise? Is it a, like, what is the core business model? Most businesses are built around a product, not a model. And so by building around the product or service, you actually fundamentally restrict your growth and can't build that thing into a massive growth. I ask people, uh, what's the territory size of your business? And, you know, the most of them, they, they look at you and go, well, you know, I sell here. And I go, well, where is here? Mm. What are you going to do to go global? And they, they look at you funny. I said, well, okay, let's make it really simple. What are you going to do to open the business in India? And they, they go, well, what? what do you mean, what am I going to do to open the business in India? Great. Until you have a strategy to open in every part of the world, you don't actually have a strategy. You know, until you can open the business on every street corner that it's, that it's fund that it is economically viable to open it on, then it doesn't make sense. Your business model doesn't work. What is the use of building a business model, getting it working, and then doing it in one spot? Let me state that again, because this is a dramatically powerful yeah. lesson that most business owners never grasp. If I go to all the trouble to build a restaurant, okay, I got all the trouble to work out what's the lighting got to be like? What is the fit out? What does everything got to look like? What's the menu got to be? What is the marketing got to be? What is all of these things got to be? If I go to all of that trouble to build that, why would I do it in one spot? Why not roll that out into all of the viable markets around the world that make sense to have that business? Even one step further, Action Coach client just the other day, he is in the uh, um, construction business, right? And uh, particular area of construction, I sat with him and I said, how long have you been coaching with Action Coach? He said, I've been with Action Coach four years. I said, fantastic. What's happened over that four years? He said, well, we're eight times revenue. We're about 12 times profitability. The business now runs. I don't have to go in every day. It works without me. I said, great. What about the next city over? Did you buy the business that does your business in that next city over? He says, no. I said, what about the city after that? The city after that? He said, I haven't thought about it. I said, how many cities could you buy the exact same business that run as bad as yours was four years ago, just take the knowledge of what you've spent four years learning and go and do that again and again and again and again and again and again. Can you build a team of people that do what you did there in a hundred locations around? And he's just sitting there going, oh, so you mean use my same knowledge and do it again? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Why do something and learn it all to just do it once? 
Is that because of low goals? Is that because of the ruts that people get to paying the bills? Because no, we think that the business owner is an entrepreneur. You're not an entrepreneur. you got one business. Well, look, let's go to identity, identity shift, which is something that you talk about here, and, you know, moving up to becoming an entrepreneur. What shifts do people have to go through in order to, to become an entrepreneur? Well, you have to learn it first. You have to learn that, you know, just by watching this, there's a lot of people sitting there, they're going... Well, I want to be an entrepreneur now. I don't want to be a business owner. I want to so actually how, how do you change your identity? <sighs> identity shift is a whole process. Uh, so most of us, our identity is formulated over a period of time based on other people's feedback to us. Okay, Sometimes it's formulated by our goals mm -hmm. uh, and, and our dreams and goals and what we choose those to be. Um, so you're looking at multiple different formulas here, James, and... and Maybe for more detail on this, people can jump on my YouTube channel or, or something like that. But you're looking at the formula for success, which is dream, goal, learn, plan, act, how you build your dreams and goals, because that then works in with the formula called B times do equals have. Who you are multiplied by what you do determines what you have. So start with what you want to have, your dreams and goals. Work back to what do I need to do, your learning and your plans. And that works back to who do I need to become in order to do, in order to have. But that become is your identity. And the identity iceberg, which is a whole other thing, this is all in my 30X Life training program. Uh, the identity iceberg goes through from your behaviors to your skills, to your, uh, to your beliefs, to your values, down to your identity and then the environment around you. Your identity is anything you use the words I am. So I am a business owner. I am an entrepreneur. I am an investor. I am a dad. I am a mom. Um, the worst ones ever are the I am just a. Um, I am not good at. Yeah. Anything where you start with I am defines your identity. And it's, uh, I've always said it clearly, it's what you say to yourself about yourself when you're by yourself that matters most. And that's where a lot of that identity self-talk, you know, you're going to be the person you talk to the most. So you should probably have positive conversations with yourself. You know, talk about the two-day business strategy workshop that you do. I mean, you also do a two-day purpose. That is an identity shift, yeah? Yeah, yeah. What, what I try and do, look, I love education. I love it. If I, if I didn't love education, all I would do is be build companies, you know, but... I enjoy teaching, hence why I'm here sitting with you doing this, hence why I write books and do all that stuff. Education is kind of like my, I don't know, it's, it's I don't want to say gift, but it's, it's my calling, if that makes sense. You know, sometimes people are given their calling in that, you know, they might have a child that's born with an illness or something, so they're given their calling in life. Other people, you find your calling and, and that's what it is. I find that education is my calling, but to be a good educator, I need to keep doing. If I don't keep buying companies and doing the stuff that I do, like my latest book on raise your hand marketing only came about because of what I've had to do with marketing in the latest two companies we bought, where we've had to do things to fix the marketing of those companies. So it's a different philosophy on marketing than what I've ever had before. So I think the doingness comes back to that. But the purpose workshop is two days of helping people understand who they are and why they do what they do and what is their purpose for being here on this thing. And whether you find it or choose it or, or it's given to you, your calling's a very important aspect. Yeah, no doubt it is. I mean, again, you've reached the emotion with me there, just as you said that your calling is to educate and evolve over time. When you said about the, 
some people are given it, you know, a, a child is born ill or uh, with a disease and you've got a calling now. Yeah. Is that so crucial in understanding your calling to build a business moving forward and link it to oh, that? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I know there's a lot of people that have built great businesses that had nothing to do with their calling. But then again, I remember there was a does young the businesses, guy. Does the business allow you to fulfill your Business often allows you to do it. But I remember there was a young guy here in the UK, gosh, got to be 12, 15 years ago. I forget his name even. And I sat with him at one point and he'd achieved everything he wanted to achieve in his business. And he's doing sort of 20 odd million pound a year. And I said, well, you know, why did you go into business for yourself? He said, I went into business to give people jobs. I said, well, explain that to me. So when I was a kid, my mom and dad were sometimes in work, sometimes out of work. And there were times when we didn't have food, we didn't have electricity because neither of them were working. He said, so I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I could give people jobs and help to do that. I said, well, how many people do you want to give jobs to? And he went, I don't know. I said, well, don't think about it for a little bit. And he went and did some research and he found out that in his town, in his area where he lived, there were 6,700 people out of work. So he said, my, my job is to give another 6,700 families jobs. What a shift, though, that is. Totally. Total shift. It's, it's going from a goal. It's a purpose. Well, if we look at goals, you start out with negative goals. Not be fat, not be broke, yeah. not be unfit, yeah. not be, yeah. like, don't want to work 80 hours. Yeah. They're the negative goals. Get away from a negative. You move to positive goals, which is I want to be in a positive scenario, a, uh, instead of I don't want to be fat, I want to be able to run a mile yeah. five times a week or I want to be able to have 50 grand in the bank or I want to be able to work four days a week, five hours a day, sort of defining what you want. So as a 13-year-old boy, I set the negative goal because I got in trouble at school and I a whole other story about blaming the jeans my mom bought me. Thanks, mom, sorry. Um, too short were your long legs. Uh, no, no, <laughs> Levi's 501 was what was cool and mom bought me corduroy jeans from Kmart. And if right. you've ever worn corduroy pants, you know they make a sound when you walk. And it was like, yeah, yeah. So a young boy, me, got into a fight and hey, presto. But I declared at 13 that I will always have enough money. Uh, I will never not have enough money to have what I want. You know, and it was a great it's thing. amazing drive, was, though, that, was, that gives you, isn't oh, it? Yeah. That, that sense of motivation. On my podcast, I always ask people, what, when did you decide to be successful? And everyone always has a moment in their life when they actually made the decision that I have to be successful. And it's it, always true. Now, stage two goal setting, I was lucky enough at 16 to meet Mr. Jim Rohn, E. James Rohn, who taught me about positive goal setting. And what we just talked about about that young man is where you move to stage three goal setting, which is about your legacy, about your purpose, about what you want to leave, what mark do you want to leave on the world sort of thing. I do remember at 16, Mr. Rowan asked me to write my obituary and it didn't, at 16, you're like, ah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Later on in life, I did sit down and write my obituary, which talks about, you know, how do you want to be remembered on this planet? And that's a big part of your legacy or your purpose. With that legacy goal, though, that, that guy, you I mean, that was one question that you answered, uh, asked him. So he said, I want to employ people. You said, well, how many do you want to employ? Don't answer now. Go and do your research. Yeah. Well, that's the advantage of having a coach. A coach asks you questions you don't even know to ask yourself. And a great coach asks you massive questions. Well, I've got some quick ones for you. Don't know how okay. massive these are going to be. <laughs> so these are quick, easy ones now. So, um, so what's your favorite brand or business? Favorite brand? Mm. Amazon. Why? Other than my own brands, Amazon. 
Okay. Amazon? Ease. Ease. So easy. Open the phone, click a button, it's there tomorrow. Done. Oh, yeah, I don't want to go anywhere else. Done, done, done. I hate going shopping. You know, the trend today <laughs> that uh, there, there's now approximately 40% of people that say they don't want to deal with a salesperson when buying. And the majority of people say they're 70 to 80% already decided before they talk to a salesperson. That's just... That to me is me. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm ready. Like I remember buying my car, literally building the whole thing, and yep, send the guy calls me from the dealership and says, Mr. Sugars, you forgot about this one thing you would need in Vegas and this one you don't need in Vegas. Great, take them off, put that on, order. If they'd had an order button and credit card button, I would have done it on the site. <laughs> Favorite TV show. Changes fairly often. Um, if I have to go all time, f- see at the moment, Yellowstone is right there. Okay. I was a fan from day one, uh, which brings me to the only time I think I've ever fanboyed in my life. Season one of Yellowstone, they weren't famous at all. And, uh, I walked out of my suite at the T-Mobile arena in Vegas and bumped into Cole Hauser, who plays Rip on the TV show. And, uh, Denim was there with him, two other guys. And I bumped into him and, and I was going to the bathroom and I was like, damn, that's Rip. And I, <laughs> Literally had an undershirt on, which was Yellowstone Dutton Ranch undershirt. Yo. First season. No you, one else you, had you it. You bought the shirt? I followed the guys oh, to the bar, and we I had a good old time. We, I did that with Sing, too. Yeah. I've got two of the tops. They're so good. Um, yeah, so Yellowstone, I'd probably, if I had to go all-time West Wing. There you have it, folks. Sorkin. Sorkin's a... All right, you've already spoke about the car, so what's your favorite car? Uh... I have two favorite cars. Depends on the day of the week. Uh, my Lamborghini Urus and my Rolls Royce, the Drophead Coupe. Why? Why? Why those two? Different moods. There you got it. Most inspirational speaker you've ever seen. Inspirational. Okay. Nick Vujacic. Why? Young boy, yep. young man, no arms, no legs. Created a great life for himself. Didn't let that stuff get in the way. Yeah, ridiculous. All right, so non-inspirational if you talk business. Educational? Here. Educational, yeah. I have to go back to Jim because it was the first guy. Jim Rome was the first guy I ever saw in, in seminar and it was like just swung me the other way. All right, so we've been talking about entrepreneurship here, all right? So if the people listening right now knew they are going to succeed as an entrepreneur... What are the things that they would start doing? Read my book, Billionaire in Training. Yep. That's all about entrepreneurship. Um, you know, you would start thinking bigger, I think, is probably the biggest thing. Start thinking global. Start thinking what can go global. But take actions on a small level first. I learned with small businesses before I got into big businesses. I didn't make a mistake with millions. I made a mistake with tens of thousands remember my pizza business and that one just going out of business because one of our competitors didn't cook their meat products properly and all of a sudden every fresh pizza was pulled off the shelf of the stores. Our brand and their brand all sent back to us and it's like, well, I guess we're shut down on that one but it didn't cost me millions, it cost me tens of thousands. So early learning was was, uh, that sort of thing. But um, just remind yourself that it's a 10-year journey, I think, James, is the thing. Don't... Too many young people today, and I was the same. I, I got to say it. I was the same. I thought I would do it all in one year. You know, I thought in one year I can make everything happen. I think as long as you stay 
very clear that it takes 10 years to build you, not the business. It takes 10 years to build you into the type of person that understands money, understands investing, understands business, understands other humans, leadership, marketing, all of that. You've got to learn all those things. So take the 10 years to build yourself and then everything else will fly. Fantastic. Oh, one more. What's been your favorite part of this discussion on entrepreneurship? Um, just, I, I love it when people finally get the distinction between being a business owner and being an entrepreneur. That was my favorite bit. How you orchestrated those four, five, maybe six points when we go back and watch the watch it afterwards. Um, deal making, leadership, planning, and vision. Getting it run under management. Uh, what, what do you say? Re, uh, getting capital in. You know, finding capital. Visionary. My favorite bit. Thank you, Brush, for this. Thank you, James.